Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're joined by very special guest, Todd Trester, who's the founder of FinancialMentor.com. Welcome to the show, Todd. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jonathan and Rochelle. Now, for folks who are just encountering you for the first time, can you give them an idea of uh, who you are and what you do? Well, I was born in, I mean, do you really <laughs> want me to go all the way back or do you, like, you just want the quick 30 second overview or? Hey, it's up to uh, you. Yeah. So anyway, my real background, you know, I was an economics degree, but my real background was uh, hedge fund investing. And that's kind of what shaped all the teachings I do to this day. So I built my wealth in the hedge fund business, kind of a fairly traditional way. I did paper assets, but I did them in a very non-traditional way with the hedge fund business. And then, uh, but the business was what really created the financial independence, saved a very, very high percentage of my income. Once I was financially independent, I got into real estate, owned at one point 160 apartment units and had a tax lien business, owned a bunch of land and some houses. And then um, I got really uncomfortable around 2006, 2005. I started getting uncomfortable. 2006, I got super uncomfortable. I sold all my real estate and I was roundly criticized for that, but I just was very uncomfortable with financial leverage at the time, unwound all that financial leverage, and then went back to a liquid position, worked with paper assets again, using my hedge fund skills, and started building Financial Mentor, which is what you're here to talk with me about today. And the idea behind Financial Mentor was that I'd had it going for a while, way back when I was doing the real estate investing. It was always kind of this little boutique coaching business. And I was kind of curious, could I really help ordinary people achieve extraordinary financial results? Could I help them break through? Because um, you know I had done pretty well. And so I, I thought I understood how to do it. But then through coaching, I really learned how much there was that I still had to learn. Like I understood the financial part, but so much of it is human and emotional and how you integrate finance with people. There's just so much more to it than most people understand. And so I worked with clients for almost two decades, one-on-one. And now I'm in the process. I've grown the platform. It outgrew it, got to the point I couldn't accept new coaching clients. The business was sold out. And uh, I finally had to turn it off and say, no more new clients. And so now I'm in the process of writing books and building out courses and trying to put all that knowledge into a price point that's more efficient. You know, it's very expensive to coach, but books and courses are way more affordable. So that's kind of where it's all going. So you mentioned leverage. I know Rochelle is like itching to talk about that. <laughs> And I, I want to tell my own personal story quick before that, just to give some context. I first heard of you on a podcast, I think it was a Brennan Dunn's podcast. And you told a story about a book you had written back then. We're probably going back three years now. And you had written something, if I remember correctly, it was sort of a off the cuff thing that you put together. And you were describing that for a relatively small labor time investment. Uh, you were able to create something that that was, let's just say, paying out a thousand dollars a month. You know, not a lot of money, but the thing that blew my mind was that you said, you know, thousand dollars a month is not that much, but I would have to have something like a half a million dollars in an account to throw off that kind of of a dividend. Is that the right word? I mean, cash like flow, cash flow. So, so it was like you did this thing. You know, how long would it take me to put a half a million dollars in an account? Probably a long time, but over the course of a weekend, six weeks, whatever it was, some small amount of time, you're able to create this, I believe it was an ebook, you put it on Amazon and like, oh, look, money. And I was really like, wow, that's a really interesting way to look at the time investment. 
Yeah. So most people don't understand cash flow equivalents to asset equivalents. So in other words, like the way financial planning is commonly taught, right, is that you're supposed to build this little mountain of money. So you're supposed to work like a dog, make a lot of money. And then after paying taxes and after paying your bills, you're supposed to scrimp and save. And that's what is your savings. And you're supposed to compound that savings over time to build your little nest egg or mountain, whatever it becomes. And then from that, then you're supposed to, once you retire at this mythical age of 65 or whatever it is, then you're supposed to spend that down until you theoretically spend your last penny you know, before you take your last breath. And of course, it's a complete fiction. Uh, life doesn't work that way for almost anybody. And so that's where, you know, the first book I wrote, which was how much money do I need to retire? And you can get that on Amazon. That's where I wrote that first book. And what happens is a lot of people don't understand that there's many dimensions to this puzzle and far from making it more complicated, it actually, what it does is it opens up possibility. It frees you to be way more creative with your life and to do a lot of different things with it. And so the topic you're addressing that surprised you and it surprises a lot of people is the cash flow equivalents of assets. In other words, when you're trying to live off assets, you can't spend very much of the assets. It's an amortization equation. And so there's a common rule thrown around in the financial planning profession, the 4% rule. You know, I've got a whole book on it. It's beyond the scope of this interview to go into depth. But let's just say it's close enough to play with, right? Now, there's a lot of subtleties to it and you got to adapt to it and all that. But the 4% rule says that you can spend 4% from your assets every year to support your living expenses, right? And so if you take that and you multiply it out for 12 months in a year, okay, so first of all, let me, let me figure out. So the 4% rule, the inverse of that is 25, right? So you have to have 25 times the assets. And then you figure that's in a monthly spending. So then 12 months out of the year is the annual. And so then you come out with what I call the rule of 300 or the rule of 400, depending on if you're working with the 3% rule, which is more conservative, the 4% rule. And again, I'm getting a little hung up on the math here. Don't get hung up on it. The bottom line is that your spending amount is roughly equal to 300 to 400 times in assets. So if you make a thousand a month off a book or something, that, that book is roughly equivalent to three hundred to $400,000 in equity. And so it's the same thing, like you can apply it in the business asset class. And this is something I teach my wealth planning course, uh, which you have, you know, is when you get into the advanced planning framework, then I start going into all the different asset classes and the characteristics of the asset classes and how you can use them in very creative ways. Because each asset class has its own characteristic. And the way the math works with the money each has its own characteristics. And so once you understand it, it's really simple. I know it sounds quite complicated the way I'm explaining it. When it's explained properly in a structured format, it's really pretty simple to understand. It's pretty obvious. And so it comes down to some simple rules like what you're hearing here, which is you know, the rule of 300 or the rule of 400. So if we had someone who was earning $1,000 a month from like a book or an e-course or a product of some sort, they would need an equivalent of three to four hundred thousand dollars in the bank to draw down a thousand dollars without touching the principal. Close. It doesn't. It, there's a slight amortization of the principal in the equation. So it's actually an amortization equation. It's kind of like the way you intuitively understand it is a mortgage, right? You know how you have a thirty-year mortgage and each payment is mostly interest, but there's that little tiny bit that goes to principal. So it's the same thing, but in the opposite direction when you're amortizing an asset base, right? Most of it is what the assets earn and a little tiny bit chews away at the principal. And then over time, it amortizes the entire 
nest egg. So that's where it comes from. It, you know, it's predicted over a thirty-year time frame, just like a thirty-year mortgage. That's why you're drawing you're drawing it down. Yeah. I just want to pause for a second because I think that's really powerful. So if if I've got a thousand dollars a month coming in from some little thing that I've done, an investment of my time, a leveraging of my time, it would take me three to four hundred thousand dollars in the bank to replicate that. If you look at how the rich get that way. Right. If you look at the studies, there's a lot of studies done on this. So it's it's not some big secret. You'll find that nearly all of them at the mega rich level, it's almost 100% from business asset class. And then at the normal rich level, you know, let's say five to 15 million, it's mostly business asset class. Second in line is real estate. And then far distant third is conventional paper assets and conventional financial planning, like everybody thinks it's supposed to be, right? So surprise, the thing that everybody's taught is the lowest outcome. And even then, when paper assets work, surprise, surprise, the people that show up are very, very old. It's only after a lifetime of compounding that it's an effective wealth builder. You know, that's another principle I teach in the course is that it's those last one or two compounding periods that create the wealth. And that's intuitively understandable. Like if you think about, and that's why it happens at old age, right? So the intuitive way to understand that is think about like a lake and imagine there's a plant, this mythical hyacinth plant that covers the lake and it starts with one little leaf and then it multiplies to two and that multiplies to four. And this goes on for years as it slowly covers the lake. Well, here's the surprise. The two days before that lake is completely covered, it's only one-fourth covered. And then the day before, it's half covered. And then on the final day, after two years of compounding, it's finally completely covered. And most of it happened in those last two days. It's the same thing with compounding wealth in the traditional fashion, is it almost always happens at the end. And that's why you see, when you look at studies of how the rich get that way, and if you're using the paper asset class then it's usually old age financial independence. Right, which is a bummer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's not how you want to live life, right? I mean, and that's the beauty of like the business asset class and the real estate asset class is they have two advantages that aren't common to the paper asset class in building wealth. And those are that they have leverage possibilities, which is something we'll probably talk about, and then also tax advantages. And those two things make a big difference. And so- So I know what real estate is, probably everyone does. Can you give some examples of business asset class things, items, whatever? Are we talking about a book or like what are those things? Well, no, you build a business. It could be anything. Like if it's a book, then it's an intellectual property business, right? You're building intellectual property. But even then you have to build a business because as anybody knows who writes books, you have to have a platform that sells those books. Okay. So you're just saying like a business that they built, like a chain of laundromats or something. Bingo. It can be anything. It could be laundromats. It could be car washes. It could be a service business. It could be anything, but that's the primary wealth building vehicle, even though it's not commonly taught that way. And the funny thing is, is you start working with these, these three primary asset classes, you start finding that there's more in common than different. You know, So for example, if you own shares as a stockholder, what do you own? You own shares of a business. Well, if you own a business, you own hundred percent of it. Right, but it's still a business and has business characteristics. But when you're the direct owner, you have certain privileges that you don't have as a stockholder. The difference is when you're a stockholder, it's passive. You know, as a business owner, it's active. And so, you know, you got to go into the details of the characteristics of the business or of the asset class. You match the characteristics of the asset class to your specific needs. 
it's very different from traditional financial planning. Traditional financial planning, they just tell you how it is, right? You just make money, you try to save it, you shovel it over and they have some magical asset allocation and you're supposed to get rich at the end of the rainbow. Whereas the way I teach it is that each asset class has its own unique characteristics and you, your life situation and your resources provide specific characteristics also to your wealth plan. And the way to make it work for you is you match those two. It's like Velcro, right? Like the hooks and loops in Velcro, when you get it right, they stick. And that's, that's the whole strategy that you try to do is you try to find out how you match the specific characteristics. So as an example, I'm just going to take a guess, Jonathan, you're a bit of an entrepreneur. That's why you have a podcast. That's why you're building a platform. And so a business asset class is a good fit for you. Uh, for some people who have like, let's say there's somebody with a very lucrative legal career or medical career, anesthesiologist is an example. Um, it doesn't make sense to go develop a separate business asset class. And so they want to work with the other asset classes because they've already got the earning side of the equation taken care of. So for the sake of argument, let's just assume that everyone listening, and this is probably true, is a company of one, an independent consultant who provides a service, perhaps as an author, maybe the, the words thought leader would be used for them. And they're, they're entrepreneurial in that sense. Like, what are the sides of the Velcro? If, if one side of the Velcro is that, what are some obvious things on the other side of the Velcro? Well, they want to maximize their business, right? That's where the most, that's where the most leverage and the most tax advantages are. And since it's a solo person, leverage is critical. Yeah. And then also a really common thing for a solo person, like if they have an office space rather than rent it is just own it. Most accountants worth their salt would pretty much agree that after 50, if you plan on being in business, you know, 10, 15 years, you're almost always better off owning the real estate that your business is in than renting it. And so that would be another strategy because then what you can do. So for example, I had an attorney client who was very successful. He had a large practice. He had multiple employees and he was renting a large office space. And so I worked with him. He found a much, much larger office space as his practice was growing. He purchased it and then he sub rented out most of the office space. And then as his practice continued to grow, he just didn't renew leases on people. And then eventually, you know, he's going to have, it's not going to be too long because he's got a pretty aggressive amortization on it. So what he does is he charges himself a pretty aggressive rent. He charges the practice a pretty aggressive rent, shovels a lot of money out of the practice into his personal pocket through the real estate, amortizes down the real estate at a very aggressive rate, and he will be able to retire just on that building alone. The rental value of that building alone would be sufficient retirement for him. And so he's using the revenue of the practice to pay down. And it's a highly secure investment for him when you think about it, because all he has to do is succeed with the practice. The building's a fait complete because he can set the rent at whatever it needs in order for it to cash flow. You know, so it's, it's a very low risk way to set up an almost you know, certain retirement in a fairly short amount of time when you're a business owner. So our audience, we've got kind of a mix, right? We have consultants, we have some developers, we have people who would define their practice as a business, and we have people who might call themselves freelancers, where they're basically trading time for money. So one of the things that really fascinated me about your new book, The Leverage Equation, is how people in that category can leverage, the different kinds of leverage they can use uh, within their business. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, there's six types of leverage that I go through in the book. So you've got technology leverage, systems leverage, uh, network leverage, relationship leverage, marketing leverage. 
time leverage, financial leverage. I'm not sure if I missed any. Rochelle, you probably have the book in front of you. Um, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's always you know, the- there's always different types of leverage. And so, as an entrepreneur, business owner, freelancer, there's always more work to do than time to do it. There's always more that can be done to grow your business. And so, what happens when you start applying these various forms of leverage? All right, I got to back up a second. All, all wealth is the result of the compound growth of personal capital and financial capital, right? You can attribute all wealth growth to those two factors. So then you take those two factors and the thing about leverage that it does is it says, well, it doesn't have to be your personal capital and it doesn't have to be your financial capital. And so what leverage does is it allows you to break free of the return on equity equation through building your business, right? And so this is getting a little fancy, but let me try to explain. In the traditional model, which we opened the interview with, you're limited by your return on equity equation, right? So you save money, that's your equity, and then it compounds or grows. And there's mathematical limits to what it can grow using conventional paper assets. And again, it's beyond the scope of this interview, but it's all covered in other places. And so there's mathematical limits. Well, what happens when you build a business is there's no mathematical limit to how fast you can grow the equity. You literally create equity out of uh, out of thin air, right? That's why we call it sweat equity, and that's one of the unique characteristics of the business asset class. And so the more leverage you introduce, the faster you can grow the equity. And the beauty of this is you can literally separate your equity growth from your earnings capacity or your time. If you look at how all 20-something millionaires became that way, you know, if somebody said, well, he invested in a diversified portfolio of mutual funds, I mean, it'd be a laughable joke, right? Because of course it didn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way, right? They all did it through business. They built businesses. It's like value creation. They created it out of thin air. Like we came up with this solution to a problem that never existed and people value it and boom, it came out of nowhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then they solve all the problems that go on to convert that into a profitable business, right? Because the essence of business is solving problems. Through that, they create value and that value flows back to them, you know, because the customers are receiving more value than they pay for. And so the customers gladly buy their services or products and the value flows back to them and bam, all of a sudden they're getting rich. So it's a beautiful thing. Well, I mean, getting down to like, if you're a geek about this wealth building stuff, then what it is, is you're separating your wealth growth from your return on equity equation. It's the only asset class you can do it in. It's really a remarkable thing. Um, That's why business owners are just such a step ahead from most people. It's it's really important to understand that principle. And like through leverage, you can separate your income growth um, from your time, right? In other words, as a business owner, your income growth is not dependent upon your time unless you're con- completely limited to trading time for money. And I would challenge anybody who believes they're completely limited to trading time for money to rethink that. There's probably an angle around it. So as an example in my own business, you know, I was trading time for money as a coach. In my mind, it was never really trading time for money. What it was was revenue-producing market research. I'd always planned on moving towards books and courses. And so I was building out the platform that marketed the coaching services, which was really always designed to be a platform for marketing the books and courses. As I built one, I was really building the next step ahead as part of my plan And all the coaching was helping me prove out all the models, all the instruction. So when I go to create this stuff, it's actually useful because it's all proven. I I test it first in my own life. Then I tested it on real life coaching clients, broadened it until I got it to where it worked consistently. And then I productize it. And so it was revenue producing market research. I wasn't trading time for money. I was getting paid to figure it out. 
So anyway, that's an example. Somebody might think, well, I'm a coach, you know, I'm stuck. I can only make so much. No, get creative. Think about how you can create a leverage model. And if you want, I can go into like, you know, mathematical expectancy and why leverage is so important and, you know, how it ties into risk management, all that. But you guys tell me where you want to go. Two thoughts. And one is, I'm not sure when you first talked about the types of leverage, Todd, if you said experience and knowledge, that's the one that our audience is, is banking on. They think about that. I'm not sure our audience thinks as much about some of the other things like using time and using systems, not necessarily electronic systems, but ways of getting things done where they don't have to spend the time themselves. Yeah. Bingo. Everything has to be a system, particularly when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a company of one or two or three or whatever, everything has to be a system because it's so easy to fall in the pattern. Oh, it's easier for me to do it myself, right? Yes. Uh, Guilty, guilty. Yeah, Chris Ducker, same here, right? That's why I can speak to it. I'm guilty of it. Chris Ducker had a great name for it. He called it the superhero syndrome, you know, where you think like you can do everything and you can't. Um, not only can you not do everything, you know, you might think you can do it better than other people. Guess what? You can't. There's very few things that you're truly the best at. And, you know, I'm speaking from experience here. So, like, I recently, um, increased my leverage through hiring an editor. The big clog in my business is my writing time. And I was, I was stuck in the thinking just like everybody else. Oh, I can't leverage my writing. It's my thoughts. It's my, it's my knowledge. It's just, I have to sit there and labor it out wrong. If I really dissected the amount of time I spent in writing, I realized that 80, 80% plus of my writing time was spent editing. Well, as it turns out, I'm a good editor but I'm not a great editor. There are people who are much better at it than me. And so I've just, I went through three editors, all of which failed, but I finally, on my fourth editor, I found one that works and I'm using her and it's completely accelerating my writing time. And she loves it. She's in a freelance editing business and she loves having a reliable client now. Um, so it, it's a win for both of us. Yeah. I went through three, three VAs before I found a fourth. You Thanks to Rochelle staying on my back about it. And I was like, all right, I'll try again. And boom, fourth one. I was like, hello, home run. Oh, when you get it right, it's so wonderful. This brings up another rule that I have. It's not in the book, but it's basically, um, it's if somebody's not working, replace them, right? Because it's really hard to get that chemistry right. And when you get it right, it's just so nice. And so in the hiring times, you know, in hiring practices, I believe in temping for a little while. And then if they work great, take them on full time. And if they don't work, then you go to the next person because it's the retraining process is just too hard. The person has to have the essentials correct. Todd, maybe you could talk a little bit about, it's a very small part of the book, but I loved it. You have a time tracking exercise in the beginning of the book about how to think about your time. And you talk about assuming everything is delegable. Is that a word that, that you can delegate everything? Until you prove that it can't be. Yeah. So the whole idea is that you look at everything that you spend your time on as a failure of your business systems, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so the whole idea behind that is that you should only be doing what's absolutely essential for you to do. So if you look at it at, with the assumption that it's a failure of business systems and you create a system, a standard operating procedure, uh, you find a delegation process, an assistant, you just start finding all the ways to leverage out everything that you're doing. And that way you're only left with the things that you absolutely must do. And it takes time. I'm not going to tell anybody it's easy, 
Um, but it's well worth the effort because it's the only way you get freedom. See, the, the thing about being an entrepreneur is the danger is that the more successful you become, the more trapped you become by your business. And the only way you can actually have both freedom and money is to use leverage. It has to be done. Otherwise, the more successful you are, the more time it takes. It's the tiniest little thing, but I, I have a couple of recurring things that I do, but not they're only like every couple of weeks, but they're every couple of weeks. And I cannot tell you how amazing it is to have written down a process for running, you know, like a podcast interview type of thing. Like here's the checklist of things. So I, I can just go into execution mode because I have to, this is one of those things I have to show up, you know, I'm not going to like outsource the hosting of a podcast, but all of the things around it to have this just checklist in place to, so there's this system to just go through it. I don't have to think about it. I can crank through it. And uh, you're right. It, it takes a little bit of time to put it together and, and you, you tend to tweak them a little bit over time. But I'm just always looking for more places to have these, I call them SOPs. It's like, here, here's the standard operating procedure for like this. And it's just amazing. So the way I always do it is I always figure it out first um, because I have to understand it well enough to run the business and make business decisions around it, right? And so I'll usually start and figure it out and get the scope of it. And I'll go through like probably two, three passes of it. And then I pass it off with the standard operating procedure I made up to that point. So as I'm figuring it out, I map everything out in a Microsoft Word document outline format. And then I'm adapting it as I learn through the first two to three iterations. And then once I get it down where I've got kind of 80-20 rule and I understand it, then it goes to my assistant or to somebody else, paid VA, you know, other somebody that's an expert in that field, whatever it is. And they have specific guidelines of how they follow it. But then one of the guidelines is they have to maintain the document and improve it. And every time they make a change to it, they have to send it to me. So part of their scope of work is to maintain the document in current form. So there's a couple of things to that. One, if they get hit by a bus or they choose to leave or whatever it is, I've got a fully ready to go training document that's current um, for how to do for how to follow procedures that that person was implementing for me. So that's one purpose on it. But two, it gives a standard operating procedure for that person to benchmark against. Because it usually there's quality control. They're all complex tasks and they have multiple steps and there's lots of things that go on. So it serves the other person too, the employee, because they've got a standard operating procedure to do, you know, to do that task. Because some stuff like our podcast, I have a podcast too. You know, I'm not regular. I, I violate all the rules. So I, I put it out maybe two, three times a year. And I know you're supposed to publish regularly, but it just doesn't work for me. By the time my assistant goes to produce a podcast, she hasn't been doing it regularly. So she has to go back, look at the standard operating procedure and follow the instructions. So yeah, I systemize almost everything. There's very little I don't do. And I'm constantly adding to them. So like when you guys booked me, right? Did you notice it went straight to Aaron? And Aaron managed, Aaron managed all the booking. Well, now if you tried to book me, you'd find you don't even get to my email. In other words, if you send it to me, you get an auto response on the email. Aaron would do the response automatically. I wouldn't even see it. So I'm constantly pulling myself out of the equation. And email is the latest thing that I pulled myself out of. And by the way, she was a delight to work with. She got everything quickly, whatever we asked for, we got. Um, and she would give us instructions on things. She's the best. She's been, she's been with me for years and she has a tremendous amount of independence. She knows how I operate and how I roll. And she's constantly making decisions without me even involved. Yeah, she's the best. 
I just want to take a moment thinking of our audience again, that standard operating procedure is so critical because when you're a solo, you kind of think you don't have to do that because it's just you. But when you actually start to delegate to other people, what the, the system you described can give that person a real sense of safety. You know, that if suddenly this person is gone out of my life and out of my business, I'm not in trouble. And I don't have to keep somebody that isn't working because they hold the keys to the kingdom. Well, and here's the other thing too, is structure is freedom. You know, when all this stuff is structured, guess what? You can focus your limited bandwidth on the things you really need to figure out to run the business and grow it and take it to the next level. You know, when all the mundane stuff is taken care of in standard operating procedures and business systems, now suddenly you're free to build it. The less of the mundane stuff you do, the more you can focus on growth, the more you can focus on where you want to take the thing, or you can just relax and read a book. It, structure is freedom. So there's no reason not to do it. It takes the, the price you pay is you give a little bit of price up front. But my experience is when done well, it pays for itself multiple times down the road. Especially soloists running their own business, there's no end. There's no end to the stuff you could do. So creating these little, they're like little, little machines. They're like these little engines that just, I have a developer background. It's like writing a little script that does this thing. You press a button or you schedule it even better and it just happens. And you can forget that it's even happening. I have things, I have things working on my mailing list that I don't even know how they work at this point because it's been so long that I, that I've looked at it. And if something blew up, people would tell me and it just keeps going, just keeps working. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, I was actually inside my mailing system, my email system this morning before the interview because we thought we had a problem with one system, but it turned out we didn't. It was a user error off of somebody else. Some guy complained and it turned out he didn't understand stuff, right? But I'm inside and I'm checking like the workflows and like the tags and how people proceed through the various things, right? So like, for example, um, and this ties in what we we're talking about. So you buy the book, The Leverage Equation. And then in there, Rochelle, as you saw, it, it asked you to go to the site and download all the bonuses because the bonuses make the book actionable, right? So you don't just read the book, then you have all the exercises, you have all the things you do to put it into action so you can actually use it in your life. And so when they come into that, now they get a sequence where they're delivered these bonuses and they're explained some stuff about the book and whatnot. Well, they can be in that sequence, but then there's another sequence that goes on for my wealth planning course where they can actually test drive the course for free. Well, if they're in that one, it delays the other ones until they're done with that one sequence. Then it starts the next one. And then, so I was looking at the layering of it and I was going through like 25 people. I was going, man, this thing's beautiful. Look at what it's doing. <laughs> yeah. like, it's delivering all this value. It's delivering them these useful things and it's treating them with respect, right? Because it's not, it's not overwhelming them with like three sequences at one time and they're getting confused as to what email goes to what. Like one gets delayed automatically until they complete one. And then it starts the other one that's less important and less relevant. And it's like I was looking at it going, ah, oh, this thing's really cool. <laughs> what genius made this? <laughs> Here's the funny thing. It comes back to leverage again. I didn't make it. Okay, I know enough about the business that I knew how I wanted it to work to respect the subscriber, respect the people that follow my work. I wanted that. I knew how I wanted it layering and stuff. I didn't know how to program it. And I still don't know how to program it. And so I hired a consultant. He's an absolute expert in this stuff. That's all he does. And so he set all that up and he was even setting up some more complex stuff 
but then I wasn't ready to go that far. And so, but it's, it's, it's pre-set up to track what people do inside the site. So it delivers only the most relevant content based on what they're consuming. And like, it's, it's just, the thing is brilliant. You couldn't hire enough employees to do all that. And yet this electronic system that you might spend, you know, a few thousand dollars. And when I say a few, it's like in single digits, you know, two, three, 4,000 bucks to get set up right. Once it's set up, it's generating that like 10 times that every month for you. Power of automation. Rochelle, what was the leverage you mentioned, expertise and knowledge? Yes, that was one of the six. Yeah, so I just gave you an example of that. I hired a, cons- I hired a consultant to set up this because it's a, any, almost any time I turn to technology, I hire somebody. So like I'm competent at technology, but I'm not, it's not my expertise, right? So you've all had this experience, right? You'll sit down and you'll try to fix some little bug and you'll spend like four hours on it. You'll get frustrated. You can't figure it out. And you finally contact this expert and the guy says, oh, it's this word here. It's spelled wrong in the code. And then he, he changes the spelling in it or changes the punctuation in the code and suddenly everything works perfect. And he did it in like two minutes. Right? I he am just, an expert and yeah. I still hire people. <laughs> yeah. So like I don't do anything technology. I've got a guy that's worked with me for years now. And that's the thing. I, like I treat my people really good right? I really respect my people, their schedules, their lives, whatever. We always figure out how to make stuff work. And they stay with me a long time. And, and so this guy's been with me. He started with me back when he was a college student. And he did this as a little sideline thing to pay his way through school, but he was brilliant. I mean, the guy was good and he understood entrepreneurial stuff too. And now he's, he, he graduated long since, and he's got full-time work in programming with major, major companies and yet he retains me because we became friends over the years and he just kind of keeps me as a little side business. And he knows my work inside out. He does all my programming. But yet when I had to hire uh, somebody for the email stuff, I went and found a completely separate expert because that was not his expertise for him to fumble through that would have taken a tremendous amount of time, been inefficient, frustrated him. He knows code inside out. This guy knows email stuff inside out. So I always hire experts just as people hire me as their expert. Right. If you want to understand wealth building and how to bring in asset classes, things like that, I'm kind of a junkie for it. I mean, I've lived and breathed it, you know. I have a book called Hourly Billing is Nuts. I'm super anti-hourly billing. I'm super anti-trading time for money. Well, um, that's why you're a fan of Brennan. Yeah, exactly. Yes, we're we're definitely on the same page. What's the time leverage angle? Is that is that related somehow getting away from that? Yeah. Time leverage is pretty intuitive for most people. So the one that's not intuitive, like when people think of leverage, I'll come back to time leverage in a second. When people think of leverage, they hear the title leverage equation. It's a little unfortunate because everybody thinks they know it already. They think, oh, that's just financial leverage, like a mortgage or taking out a loan or something. right? And then they kind of dismiss the book. They don't understand that it's like a completely different way of approaching your business, how you grow it, you know, how you look at things. It's like the difference between successful people and those who end up with mediocrity is literally comes down to how conscious they are about how they employ leverage. If you're super conscious about how you employ leverage, you can do amazing work over time. That's financial leverage, right? So people think they understand, but there's actually three layers of financial leverage. You know, people only understand one. And then you go to time leverage and people kind of get that one, right? They understand that you're hiring people to do work for you, um, you're leveraging your time through other people, other people's time. So that part's intuitive. But in the book, I explain that there's really four phases of time leverage. So the first phase is what's called rescuing productive time. And the idea here is that very little of your time 
goes into growing the business and taking it to the next level. Most of it is just what we'll call maintenance activity, you know, email, responding to phone calls, getting certain tasks done. You're just kind of keeping the machine afloat. And very little time. And so the surprising reality is that when you rescue productive time, what I'm defining productive time is defined as time that moves the business forward and takes it to the next level of success. When you rescue productive time, let's say you rescue one hour, that might literally triple your productive time because maybe you only average a half hour productive time a day, or it might double it. Let's say you rescue two hours. Almost anybody can rescue two hours of productive time in a day. It's not that hard. You know, you could quadruple, quintuple your your productive time and your and the growth of your business just by focusing on that one thing of how do you rescue productive time and that goes back to Rochelle was asking earlier about time tracking so that's the first step then the next step is that you leverage out tasks now tasks are good and bad when you leverage out a task the problem is every time you leverage something out so you you employ somebody else's time to do it for you there's always an explanation, there's a training, there's accountability, there's a start, there's an end. There's time that goes into leveraging that time out. So it has a fixed rate of return or a limited rate of return when you leverage tasks. However, the third step is when you go to leveraging processes. Processes are things that constantly repeat in your business day in, day out. They regularly occur. That's where you're best leverage starts to happen is when you leverage processes through other people. Because once you train them, you don't touch it again. And that's where all the standard operating procedures and stuff we were talking about earlier comes in. And then the fourth step is where you replace people with systems. You know, so automation systems, technology. Um, and then that's where really huge leverage comes in because now you're not paying overtime and there's scalability to it and on and on and on. And so those are kind of the four phases of time leverage. So it takes it a little beyond the intuitive and, and puts it more into progressive action steps of employing it. Yeah, that's a great outline. Love it. There's a piece in the book that is going to sound like it's not related to leveraging, but I think it is, where you talk about doing a 10x exercise uh-huh. as a way to kind of free your thinking about leveraging. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. So is, I didn't make this up, right? I mean, there's, I think there's a book out there called 10X or something like that. Um, I haven't read it, but I know of it. And that's where the idea came from. And so the idea, and it's really a powerful idea. I used it in my coaching back when I worked with one-on-one clients is you play a game and you go, okay, so my business is this today. How could I 10X it? And you take it absolutely seriously. This isn't a little fantasy thing. Like you map out a plan to 10X your, your business and put stakes on it. My children's legs will get chopped off at the knee if I don't have a viable plan by the end of this week, right? Like make it real, you know, like it's serious, right? You've got to really figure out how to get a a serious plan to 10X your business and get it down on paper, map it out. What's it going to take? And what you're going to find is the only answer is leverage, right? You're going to have to figure out all kinds of angles on leverage. That's how it connects to the book is that leverage is the only way you're going to 10X it. Because you're going to have to expand beyond the resources you have today to take it to that level. And then what you do is once you get that 10X plan, then sit down and do it again and 10X it again. So now it's 100X. And you can kind of continue this loop and start looking at what role do you really need to play in the business and then just step into that role and then start 10Xing, right? Because you're pretty quick going to see you can't do what you're doing today if you're going to 10X it. You're going to have to really change how you do it because what got you to where you are today is not what's going to get you to where you need to be to, you know, at a 10X role. I'm not a big spreadsheet guy. Rochelle's more of the list maker than I am. 
But I was like, you know, I I want to do some kind of projections and see, you know, I've got starting to have all these different different products and services and things that are somewhere in between like productized services and they're sort of automated, but partially high touch delivery. After a very short period of time, it was 100% clear what different roles those things were playing in my business makeup and which ones would have to go. And would it, like, there are only certain ones that, that could get me to a 10 X. I'm like, oh, well, this, this obviously would disappear. Like there's no, like anything that was like super duper one-on-one, incredibly high touch. Like that can be a good, you know, like you said, paid market research, but it, it doesn't scale at all. It just doesn't like, there's no, I mean, I suppose you, I could scale up and like work with really enormous clients and 10 X my fee. I, technically that's possible. Uh, but it didn't seem probable when I had like other options that were 100% low touch or no touch. I'm like, well, I mean, it'd be a lot easier to pour gasoline on that one than it would be to try and start coaching Jeff Bezos. Well, in the the concept you're bringing up, the term for that scalability, mm-hmm. right? So you want to design your business right from the outcome with principles of scalability in it. You know, and that's where I start talking about um, where I bring in the idea of mathematical expectancy as part of a wealth plan, and that's covered in the book uh, briefly. It's more in the course, but it's you know briefly covered in the book. But the idea is that mathematical expectancy is what governs wealth growth. It's just the math of wealth growth. It's that combined with the future value equation, which is brings in the time component. And so, without getting too fancy on the math, but it's. You know, the thing about it, the reason I take it all the way back to math, that's the foundation on which all stands. It's inviolable, right? Wealth is math. Finance is math. And, and these, these principles are inviolable. And if you don't take it back to the roots, you, you don't really understand it. And so the thing about the math of wealth growth and expectancy equation is it's probability times payoff. That's the intuitive way of understanding it. Probability times payoff. And everybody gets probability, right? The odds of something happening, you know, 50-50 coin flip, that kind of thing. What people don't get is when you connect probability to payoff. When you connect payoff equation to probability, what happens is outsized wins and outsized losses have disproportionate impacts on your outcome. Very, very important concept. It's not intuitive. You won't get it until you work with it a long time. And even after you work with it a long time, you still won't get it. It's just not intuitive. You have to really work with the math and I mean, I've worked with people on this stuff forever and it still surprises me. And so outsized returns have disproportionate impacts. So what that means and why it's so important to business asset class and your listeners is you can fail 99 times out of 100 and still have all the wealth you want as long as you design your plan so it has huge win, a huge scalable win when you get it right and you very carefully and very closely control the losses when you're wrong. And so there's other good resources on that, you know, like Lean Startup. You know, there's some books by Gilbo and Reese and some of these other guys that have written about, you know, how you build a business sequentially with very low risk involved. But it, you get the key point they never covered is you've got to design it right up front for scalability for the big win. And that way, when you do get it right you can scale up for that big win. What that does is that gives you very large gains with very small losses, and that means your wealth is inevitable. And it's just part of the planning. You've got to get it in the planning up front. Most people, what they do is they play for safe, sure wins, 
and then they don't understand losses and they end up getting surprised by large losses and they end up with roughly equal or slightly disproportionate in a negative way wins and losses and they don't understand why they can't get ahead. It's baked right into the math. If you understood it, you could plan differently and design your business differently. When you first started talking about it, I was almost like, oh, it's like the inverse of risk, but it, it's also risk. No, it is. Actually, they're funny. It's a good point. Uh, leverage and risk management are flip sides of the same coin when you're working with your payoff equation in, in the expectancy equation. Because leverage is how you build the scalable large win and risk management is how you control the losses. So as an example, like that course that, that you're in, Jonathan, that, that I, I refer to occasionally in the interview, that course was never any risk for me because I pre-sold 30 people into it before I ever built it. And then it's been available for sale the whole time I've been building it. And so it's been a revenue producer before it was ever built. It was never a risk. And now it's a scalable business model on top of that. It's basically zero risk. you know. And the same thing with these books, because I already have a platform. When I launch a book, it's revenue positive from day one. So I'm multiplying the business out with essentially no risk. I'm, I'm putting my time in, but other than that, I mean, that's part of my life past, so I'm not really even risking that. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, but I do want to hammer it home. So for, for folks that are listening that in case the penny didn't drop, if what you were doing with all of this effort was something that didn't scale one-on-one coaching, for example, so you're doing all this marketing effort, you're coming on podcasts like this, you're doing all these things, you're creating all these systems, to market your one-on-one coaching services, that maxes out really fast. That has a very low ceiling. How, how would you put that in financial terms? It has like a, a, it's a small payoff. Yeah, small payoff. Yeah. If you're doing stuff that's not risky, that has even a tiny chance of a gigantic payoff, I think is what you're saying, is that eventually it's going to happen. The tiny odds add up and add up and add up. And eventually it's like, oh, whoops, it happened. Yeah, I'm not going to quite say whoops. What happens is every time, you, every time you iterate, yeah, every time you iterate, you learn and you get better. And so as long as you're not getting blown out, you know, knocked out of the park on a big loss, you just keep coming back and you keep iterating and you get better and better and better. And eventually you figure it out. So I'm putting it more towards hard work and discipline and persistence, which is reality than saying, whoops, it happened, right? Because that reality is that's the way it goes is you iterate until you get it right. And you're managing risk along the way and that's what keeps you in the game. So like, look at, look at my business example. You know, I, I knew I wanted to go towards courses and books. I knew that was the leveraged model. So I'm just giving an example of me walking the talk, right? This isn't just me making up some cute theory. This is the way it works. When I said that it was uh, revenue producing market research, it was also a risk management tool, right? Because what it did was it, it, it brought in revenue so that the business was paying my bills and was cash flow positive while I built the whole thing out, while I figured it out. So again, there was zero risk. All I was doing was putting my time into something that's my life passion anyway. It was never at risk. I never put my investment capital at risk to build this business. It's always paid me. What I'm pointing out is you can get so good at risk management when you really play this you know, and you indoctrinate it into how you think and how you structure your plans, you get so good at it that even when you fail, you win a little bit. And so at that point, you're just compounding your wealth. It's just growing. You're just getting better and better all the time. And you can do it with a business of one or a company of one. Well, that's part of the way you manage risk. 
Yeah. That's part of the way you manage risk. You start with just your time. You know, I keep saying I put my time at risk, right? You start with your time and then you leverage as it produces more revenue. So what you're doing initially is you're starting with your time and then eventually you redline on your time. And every entrepreneur knows where that is, right? We've all been there. And so eventually you redline your time where you can't put any more time in. You're starting to burn out. And then that's when you know you've hit that ceiling and you have to start employing leverage. The thing about leverage that people don't get is that leverage is the solution to the obstacles that hold you back from greater success. Again, you know, people just think it's financial leverage. No, 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 no. There's six types of leverage, and each one of these is a solution to an obstacle that holds you back from greater success. When you look at the obstacles that are limiting your business growth, what you'll quickly find out is they're all due to resources, skills, knowledge, network, et cetera, et cetera, that you don't have. That's why they're limiting you. And so the solution is always leverage. And so what the book's trying to do is take you through a step-by-step process of making it conscious. Again, successful people understand this stuff at a conscious level. They're deliberately employing it. It's very different from sort of thinking maybe you kind of sort of understand it. It's like, no, 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 no. This becomes the way you think and how you develop your plans and how you implement and how you decide what's good use of your time, what, what direction you're taking business, everything. It's like the centerpiece. It, under, it underlies all of that. And that's why I'm recommending the book. It describes these things in a way that I think a lot of soloists haven't thought about before. Read the book, guys. I can chime in there too, because I work mostly with uh, self-employed or independent software developers and software consultants. And they are almost across the board in love with the activities of their job and are blind to anything that would create leverage because they can't imagine that they would enjoy their day without opening up a text editor or whatever and typing these things or drilling into AWS, you know, the, the mechanics of the implementation work that they're doing or even the, even the higher level advisory stuff that they're doing and doing something like putting together a course like that, that is like shocking. They're like, what? No, no, I do this. This is my identity. And the idea of, well, okay. So that leads me to a question. Well, can I just throw in one quickly? Yes, please. State your limitations and you shall have them. (laughs) Right. In other words, like if you define your identity a certain way, then guess what? That becomes a limitation. Right. Yeah, I'm constantly telling people to think bigger. Think bigger about your expertise. Like think how else could you package your expertise that would be valuable to someone? And let, let's let's throw a caveat in here just you know, cuz there is no god called growth. We we don't have to pray to the god called growth. If you if you don't want to grow, you don't have to. There's no there's nothing sacrosanct about it. But most people are seeking more better different. And, you know, they're not quite satisfied with where they're at. If that's the tune, then yeah, leverage is an answer. But if you're really happy with where you're at in your business of one, and you're really happy with delivering that service, and that's something you love to do, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, the real focus here is happiness. And so leverage is a tool to get more of it. If, it, if your current situation has some sources of frustration, limitations that aren't working for you, that type of thing. But if you're in a business and you love it, you're a soloist, you love what you're doing, there's plenty of demand for what you're doing, things are just working, hey, it's not broken. Don't fix it. Yeah, that's not the situation most people are in, though. It's they, they love what they're doing, but it is broke. And they're like, 
like I'm working harder than ever. Uh, it's five years later and I'm making less money than I was five years ago. I love what I do, but I'm making less money and that's not sustainable. Yeah. And that's why I was pointing out some of these principles is that's how you break through that. You can't be free and have a growing business at the same time. Eventually you're going to run into a wall and that's what you're describing as people hitting that wall. Right. So you mentioned books and courses as ways that you've leveraged your expertise. I feel like there's a pretty short list of really common things that people who are uh, these types, consultant types, authorities, and, and, and thought leaders, and those sorts of people. I mean, do you have, you know, maybe from your student body, what sorts of things, I suppose it's kind of tactical, but just to paint a picture for people, what sorts of things can they do that do set them up for like that for massive scale? Oh, that's going to vary with each business, Jonathan. I don't think there's like a pat answer I can throw. How about this? I thought you were going to ask a different question. Um, so let me throw a question and you tell me if this is interesting for you. Um, what should they do to get started with leverage? Sure. Yeah, that's okay. great. Because there is a process you want to follow. So it's going to be different for each each person, each business. There's not a pat answer. But what you want to do is you want to look at first what the obstacles are that are holding you back from where you want to go identify the obstacles, and then figure out how to leverage through those obstacles. And then that's the starting point. Always start with the juiciest point. You know, the book explains six, six types of leverage, but if in reality or in practice, they blend seamlessly together. So as an example, you know, when I'm talking about the email list stuff, I had time leverage with a consultant. I have systems leverage. I have technology leverage. I have standard operating procedures, expertise leverage. There, there's so many forms of leverage in that one example because they kind of interconnect or they cross through. I broke them into six categories to make it usable, to, to help people understand it at a deep level so they could apply it. Because when you break it down as categories, it's really easy to understand where which one you need in order to get started. But don't worry about uh, complexity. Don't worry like if you get overwhelmed by thinking, oh, there's six types of leverage. I got all this to learn. No, no, no. You just go find the one thing that's not working for you now. Identify that obstacle that's holding you back and then apply the proper type of leverage to start working on that. And even if that's too complex, just think about what type of leverage excites you the most and start there. The rest will all interconnect naturally, right? You just got to get a starting point and dig in. So like for me, I'm a natural systems leverage guy. And I explain this in the book. I'm probably either a nine on a 10 scale or a 10 on a 10 scale for systems leverage. It's just the way I think. It takes no effort on my part. It would I would fight myself not to do it. Whereas network leverage, I'm pretty mediocre. I would say I'm probably a three. I'm a bit of an introvert. I'm not you know, I'm not really that way. I'm very analytical mind. Uh, I'm not a great networker. I mean, I've seen people who are 10s and they're way different from me. Um, so you don't have to be great at all of them, you know, and what you can do over time is improve some of your weaknesses. So I get better and better at networking. Uh, that's why I'm a three now. And I used to be a one. Um, so you get better and better with it over time. And so I'm just trying to take the onus off it for people that are listening and just realize the, um, you just start somewhere, you build it over time and you get better and better with it and more and more will connect with time. And as it rewards you, you'll get addicted to it because it is the answer to most of the obstacles that hold you back. Plus one on the addictiveness. It's super addictive. It's yeah. great. Rochelle, do you have any, uh, anything else we should probably start to wrap up? No, I, I thought that was a perfect close right there. It's how to get started. Fabulous. So Todd, where should people go uh, online to find out more? 
Well, if they want the book, it's sold. You know, I'll play. How do they say that? That's really sold where your best bookstores are, or so whatever it is, <laughs> wherever you get, wherever fine books are sold. Yeah. Oh, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> so wherever fine books are sold, you can find the book. It's called The Leverage Equation. You can either look up The Leverage Equation or you can look up Todd Treseder, and that's uh, misspelled all the time. So don't worry about that. Probably just look up the book title. And then if you want to learn more about me, uh, you can go to financial mentor.com. That's two words, financial and mentor mashed together as one, financialmentor.com. And there's tons of free resources on the site. Like I said, I've got all these educational uh, series that you can do. There's a course if you're interested in going to the next level. I've got six books. I've got a seventh coming out soon. And there's like th- over a thousand you know, pages of, of content uh, that you can learn from. And again, don't get overwhelmed on it. Just pick the stuff that's interesting to you. I've got one of the largest collections of financial calculators uh, for free online. Um, there's 80 of them there. And that's because wealth is math, as I said. And so they make the math easy. They get rid of the math problems. They do it all for you. And those are all for free as well. So there's tons of free resources on the site, financialmentor.com. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This has just been great. Thank you so much, Todd. Thanks. It was great talking with you guys. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time on The Business of Authority. Bye now. Bye-bye.